I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 10th, 2013. Coming up, the creation of a Boulder Science Festival. Saturn, fossils, and the science of beer. And we'll offer a farewell to summer celebration of the insects that fill the air with their buzzing choruses. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The bacteria known as Staph aureus lives naturally in the skin of many people without ever causing any harm. But sometimes it invades the skin and causes a spider bite-like sore that be can become life-threatening within a few hours. Even more troubling, over 20% of the Staph aureus strains are now resistant to a key antibiotic that used to work called methicillin. Methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, known as MRSA, is behind diseases such as flesh-eating bacteria and many other deadly diseases. Now researchers at CU Boulder have devised a way to possibly make methicillin more effective against MRSA infections, and they've done it by studying ancient medicinal herbs. As reported today in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, CU biochemist Yan Wang and his colleagues first screened chemicals within medicinal plants, analyzing which ones helped methicillin maintain its strength against a staph infection. Then, they zeroed in on the most effective compound called OF1. According to the authors, OF1 might represent a promising weapon in microbiologists' arsenal against deadly staph infections. Other weapons, of course, would be less overuse of antibiotics in general. The Centers for Disease Control reports that misuse of antibiotics is a major reason that staph infections have become so resistant to antibiotics. There's little to no real debate among credible scientists about climate change and what's causing it. In fact, according to the Yale Project on Climate Change, 97% of climate scientists agree that global warming is happening and is human-caused. But among U.S. citizens, fewer than half believe in human-caused or anthropogenic global warming. A new survey from the Yale Project titled Climate Change in the Colorado Mind indicates that Coloradans are, in fact, more aligned with the scientists. Most Coloradans, 70%, believe global warming is happening. About half of them say that even personally they've witnessed the impact through increased severity of wildfires, droughts, and heat waves, and through reduced snowpack. Two out of three think that state and local government should do more to prepare for impacts of global warming. Most Coloradans surveyed add that if the state switched from fossil fuels to renewable energy, it would increase global economic growth and jobs. For Coloradans who want even more science, the popular Café Scientifiques are starting up their fall season tonight in Denver and Boulder. The Denver Café Sci meets tonight at 6.30 at the Wincoop Brewing Company. Tonight's speaker is CU Boulder aerospace engineer Brian Argro. His topic is Good Drones, Good Idea, and features a drone his team flew into a huge storm cloud. Tonight's Boulder Café Sci starts at 6 p.m. at the Outlook Hotel. It features CU renewable energy scientist Barbara Farhar, 
talking about the human dimensions of plug-in hybrid electric cars. All Cafe Sci Talks are free and open to the public, and you can find out more at our website, howonearthradio.org. And on a final note, with gratitude and sadness, we note the passing of beloved CU physics professor and world-renowned champion of population control. Al Bartlett died on Saturday, September 7th. He was 90 years old. His career was perhaps best remembered for a talk he first gave in 1969. It was titled, Arithmetic, Population, and Energy. Dr. Bartlett proceeded to give this talk over 1,700 more times around the world to warn about the dangers of ordinary, steady growth in population. This summer, the CU Environmental Center trained 50 student and community volunteers who have promised to give Bartlett's talk at least three times this year, 2013-2014. As for the world population, when he first gave that talk in the 1960s, world population was under 4 billion people. Today, just 50 years later, the global headcount exceeds 7 billion. You are tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Many people in Boulder are familiar with the uh, alphabet soup of acronyms for local science groups. It includes NCAR, UCAR, NOAA, NIST, JILA, CASA, LASP, SWRI, SSI series, and all the science departments and groups at the University of Colorado. These are widely known and respected research groups, which makes Boulder a veritable hotbed of science. So what better place than Boulder to hold a festival of science? That is exactly what our next two guests plan to do. Create the Boulder Science Festival, which will be held October 12th to 13th at the Millennium Harvest House Hotel. In the studio today, we have Marcella Setter, director of the Boulder Science Festival, and an experienced administrator who loves organizing events that get the public excited about science. As the director of Science Getaways, Marcella plans group trips for science enthusiasts who want to add some learning and discovery to their vacations. Joining Marcella here in the studio is her husband, Phil Plate, an astronomer, author, and writer of the Bad Astronomy blog for Slate.com. An internationally acclaimed speaker, Dr. Plate has appeared on numerous television science documentaries and is a self-proclaimed science evangelizer. Welcome to the show, Marcel and Phil. Thank you. Thanks. What was the motivation to organize a Boulder Science Festival, Marcella? Well, I'd been to um, several similar events with Phil all across the country, and uh, I kind of decided that we needed one here in Boulder because we have so many amazing world-class scientists, so much cool stuff going on, 
that I, and a lot of people don't know about it. So I decided to put it out there and let citizens of Boulder and people all across the country come and enjoy our, our beautiful town and all the amazing stuff that's happening in it. So Boulder's a very fertile ground for science. Oh, it's easy pickings here. <laughs> so I assume you're expecting this to perhaps be the first of many? I certainly hope so. It's surprising that Boulder doesn't already have something like this. Have you heard of something like this in Boulder, or did it just pop out of your brain? Well, I really hadn't heard of anything like it in Boulder. And, uh, you know, Phil has so many amazing scientist friends that I've gotten to know through him. And I and he admits I, it. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Scientists are cool. And I would ask them, you know, why isn't there, what's going on? Why isn't there some sort of science celebration in Boulder? And they all would say, you know, I thought the same thing. I'm just too busy to put it together. And I said, well, I, could, I can do that. So, so you, so you I saw did. the need and you, yeah. you had the time. And this is very similar to work, I guess, you have done uh, with organizing other things and also your getaways. Uh, you have a get, science getaways program, is it? Right, science getaways, where we take vacations that uh, you want to go anyway and add science to them. So we'll uh, we'll go someplace really interesting, a ranch out in the mountains, or, for example, we just came back from Oregon, uh, volcano country, and we had a geologist, and I would take telescopes out every night, and that's a lot of fun. You can find that at sciencegetaways.com. So this is a natural outgrowth of what the two of you do. Let's describe a little of what people might expect. Can you give kind of an outline of it and who the speakers might be? Yes. Um, on Saturday, October 12th, we're going to kick off with talks by uh, several local scientists, including um, Diane McKnight is a, is a professor at CU. She's going to talk about life deep in the Antarctic ice. Um, Reva Golden is a, a craft brewing expert who's worked for several local breweries, and she's going to teach us the science of making beer. That might be slightly popular. It's just a little bit. We figured we'd leverage the stuff that Boulder's known for. Exactly. So craft beer is definitely right. one of them. Exactly. Yeah, I, I want to bring in Boulder culture as well as science and, and pull it all together. So I thought beer was a good way to do that. Um, and then we'll break for lunch, and everybody who registers gets a, a gourmet boxed lunch to take outside. Hopefully it'll be a beautiful, warm, sunny day. And um, outside we'll have set up what I'm calling the Science Carnival, where we'll have exhibit exhibitors from many local organizations, We'll have some vendors selling unique and, and cool science-type products. Um, science swag. Science swag. We'll have live music by Danielle Ate the Sandwich. She is just this amazing singer-songwriter from Colorado, and she's super excited to be in Boulder with her band and, and provide music for us while we're outside celebrating science. And uh, after that, we'll go back in. We'll hear a talk by Phil. Do you want to tell them what you'll talk about, Phil? I'll be talking about Mars Curiosity Rover, which has been probing the red planet now for over a year and has returned amazing science. Ah, excellent. I know that uh, Mars has been a high topic of conversation recently. I'm sure that will pull in a lot of interested parties as well. I hope so. And right after me, we're moving out a couple of planets to Saturn, and Dr. Carolyn Porco will be showing us unbelievable jaw-dropping photographs from Saturn and its moon Enceladus, which is an icy moon with a global ocean underneath the ice. And that is her favorite place in the whole universe, and she's very excited <laughs> to talk about that. She works for the Cassini Project as That's um, on the imaging team. She's the lead of the team. That's right, and she's given a couple of TED Talks, and she's a world-renowned world speaker. Very excellent. This is going to be incredibly inspiring. If there's no other reason to go, this is... This is your chance to see her talk, and it's great. Yeah, Carolyn really, really will be worth uh, worth the price of admission alone. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah. and who else do you have on the list? Um, we have a couple other um, professors from CU uh, on Sunday morning. 
we're going to kick off with Jeff Logan, and he's going to talk about alternative energy. And he's going to approach it not specifically from the scientific side, but also he's going to talk to us about policy and why it seems to be so tough to get alternative energy systems in place in, in this country and what we maybe can do about it. We're, and then we're going to have paleontology with um, Professor Jalen Eberly, and she's going to teach us about the cool megafauna that lived in big, in big, big animals um, <laughs> that lived after the dinosaurs, but still a really long time ago um, in Canada. And that's her specialty. That's what she studies. Um, and then we're going to wrap it up on Sunday morning around 11 with a talk by Lon Abbott. He is uh, a CU geologist. He and his wife, Terry, have written a fantastic book called Geology Underfoot Along the Front Range. And he's going to tell us about all the stuff we don't know about our beautiful Boulder foothills. And then in the afternoon, after a little lunch break, we're going to have guided hikes up into those foothills so that everybody can see what uh, what Lon was just telling them about. And we'll have naturalists leading the hikes to answer questions. And it's just going to be a fun, beautiful stroll in the mountains. Perfect for Boulder and a great brain-body combination. Exactly. So what level will these talks be given at, general public? Absolutely, a general public and level. And will there be Q&A? Yep. There will be Q&A afterward. Um, if you're, uh, you know, even a, a middle school student, you shouldn't have any any problem getting the most out of these talks. And uh, we'll, ha we'll have Q&A at the end for all those inquisitive people who want to know more. So let people know how to register. Just go to bouldersciFest.com. That's our website. Uh, all the registration information is there. It's October 12th and 13th of this year. And I want to note, too, that we have people coming from all over the country doing hands-on demonstrations where you can make your own comet. You can make a fossil, hold an asteroid in your hand. It's going to be pretty cool. Well, that's great. Thank you both for coming into the show today. You're very welcome. Thanks, Joel. That was Marcella Setter and Phil Plate, who are organizing the Boulder Science Festival, which will be held October 12th through 13th at the Millennium Harvest House Hotel here in Boulder. For more information, go to bouldersciFest.com. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. So, does that buzzing sound familiar? I laughed recently when a friend told me she changed her iPhone text tone from crickets because she couldn't distinguish the phone from nature's cacophony outside. Actually, I'd call it more a symphony. You've heard it. It's the sound of summer, or rather, the looming end of summer for some. The chorus of crickets, cicadas, katydids, many other sound-making insects, I believe, is now in full swing. So as an ode to summer, we thought we'd bring in a cicada, another insect specialist, to tell us who these critters really are and how and why they make their sounds. 
Maybe he'll even tell us how we can eat them. Like billions of people around the world do so with delight or necessity. Brian Stuckey is a doctoral student in ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. So what was I just hearing in my backyard? That was a recording I made last week. Yeah, so that uh, that particular sound was actually a, a tree cricket, but we've got lots of insects, not just tree crickets, that are making noise right now. Such as? Well, so there's actually uh, several species of tree crickets that are active right now, but there's a bunch of katydids that live in our area that are becoming quite abundant. And what's the difference, the katydid? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So the, the differences uh, are technical. It has to do with the number of segments in the legs. But from a practical standpoint, the tree crickets are much smaller. They're, they're little pale-bodied insects, whereas katydids tend to be quite a bit larger for the most part. Like a couple inches? or They can be, yeah. Mm -hmm. And katydids generally look more grasshopper-like than the tree crickets do, even uh -huh. though they're not grasshoppers, but they look more like grasshoppers. And we've got them all in the front range area. Yes, yeah, we sure do. Right? And are they indeed in full swing now, or is it just our ears picking them up? I mean, something about their life cycle. That's right. They are. So, so for the katydids and tree crickets, they, their eggs hatch at the beginning of the summer, and so they're developing as juveniles for most of the summer. Then it's about this time of year that they become adults, and it's not until they are adults that they have the ability to produce the sounds that we're hearing. And the sounds they're making are about what? So it all has to do with males trying to attract females for mating. The so, same old story. That's right, yeah. Just so, a matter of how they do it. That's exactly right. So it's, it's, for the most part, only the males that have the ability to produce the calls, which that's not always true, but really? for the most part. And then what distinguishes these three key species in this area? You said the, the tree crickets, the cicadas, the katydids. Yeah, yeah. So the cicadas are the other major group of insects that you hear producing sounds at this time of mm -hmm. year. So maybe we should start, why don't we um, listen to your recording of the Katie did. Listen up. So that very distinct that clicking sound, what is that and how do they do that? So that's the sound that the male Katie did makes as he rubs his forewings together. So they have a special structure on the surface of one wing that uh, looks sort of like a, a comb, or a, it's called a, a file. And then on the other wing, there's a surface called a scraper that rubs across the file and makes the clicking sound. So it's sort of like, you can imagine the sound that you would make if you slowly moved your fingernail across the teeth of a comb. Mm -hmm. It's the same general idea um, as far as how the katydids make their sound. So it must be a super sturdy wing. It is a very sturdy <laughs> wing, yeah. That particular part of the wing is, is really hard and durable. Interesting. Okay, so that was the tick, 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 very distinct. Let's listen to the tree crickets, which you said were pretty common mm -hmm. now and in this area. So it, that pulsing sound, are they all, <laughs> is someone the leader? <laughs> it sounds like there's a, <laughs> there's a choral director and they're all doing it in unison. It really, yeah, that's, especially when you walk by, they start, they stop at the same time or they seem to be. That's it. a great question. Yeah, you do notice that some of the species actually are able to synchronize their, their calling and they form choruses like that where the males in an area are calling together. 
And in some cases, they actually synchronize their calls, as you often hear with the tree crickets, where it sounds like every individual is sort of pulsing at the same time. And what's the point of the synchrony, aside that's, from a nice sound for us? But I think you know, there's that, some biological strategy yeah, there. That is, that's a really great question. Um, you know, as far as why individual males should synchronize their calls, I'm really not sure why they do that. I don't know if we know for sure why they do that. But with some species, certainly, it seems like calling males are attracted to one another and they form sort of chorusing centers. And it seems to be an integral part of their mating biology. So they form sort of these chorus centers in a particular tree or a particular space. And it seems to have something to do with attracting females to that particular area. And if the female chooses, or does the female choose based on the sound she likes most? Yeah, that's right. So there really is a that may sound indistinguishable to us, but quite mm-hmm. a difference. Yes. Among the males, we're hearing seemingly pulse at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, you know, the idea is that differences in the way a call sounds would correspond with differences in the fitness of a particular male. And so whether it's the, the deepness of the pitch or, or the, the longevity of the call or something like that. Fascinating. All right, well, why don't we go to the cicada? They're curious species themselves. Yeah, listening to it, it's quite different. So what is that sound and how are they making it? Okay, yes, it is very different. Um, That's the species that's most common in our area right now. And you'll hear them calling during the day, not during the night, like most of the crickets and katydids. So the the completely different sound production mechanism, the cicadas actually have a special sound-producing organ on the sides of their bodies that katydids and crickets don't have at all. And instead of scraping two parts together, they are sort of popping rigid ribs in and out, which makes that really rap. When you do it fast enough, it makes that pulsing, buzzing sound. And I'm sure a lot of us have heard that some species of cicadas actually are underground for 17 years or 13 years before they come back up. What's going on there? And are they here? No, so those species, that's absolutely correct. There are, there are species, there was a, a bunch of them that came out in the eastern U.S. this year, but those species do not come as far west as Colorado. So the ones we have here are certainly underground for many years, but we actually don't know how long their life cycle is. Wow, many years, like four or five? Or? I, I would think at least probably, yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much. So much more we want to know about the unseen or the barely seen (laughs) world here in the summer and that's our ode to summer we'll have more actually next week with another entomologist on insects and such so thank you so much that was brian stuckey a doctoral student in ecology and evolutionary biology at cu boulder That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender. Executive producer is Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Night Noise and Brad Good. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.